and as you uh, come to take your seats, I'm going to open up here with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you praise, honor, and glory for being a good and gracious God, a God who forgives. And we thank you, Lord, for our day today to gather together to learn more about who you are through your scriptures. And uh, we do pray, Lord, that as we look at these things today, you would help us to contend for the faith once and for all handed down to the saints. And I also pray for Bob as he preaches through 1 Corinthians 3, that we would have a deep understanding of the gospel and what you've called us to and how to behave as Christians. We pray that you do this for us and all for the sake of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to begin today by giving you a quote that kind of summarizes the message I'll be giving today, and that is from Friedrich Nietzsche, who I obviously disagree with, the famous atheist philosopher. Friedrich Nietzsche famously said, there are no facts, only interpretations. And we're going to be dealing with that issue today. We're going to be dealing with something called critical theory, in which you have many postmoderns in our culture today who claim that truth cannot be known and therefore because truth cannot be known you and I cannot know truth from anything in language like the Bible and so we're going to be examining critical theory and I'm going to be giving you ways practical ways that you can refute it in fact I'm going to give you three tenets that you and I are going to have to stand on in order to disprove their theory in critical theory. But let me lay out, first of all, what critical theory is. It's a Marxist theory built on a postmodern epistemology. Now, epistemology is simply a fancy word that means the study of knowledge. How do we know what we know? So what I'm going to show you today is there are two competing epistemologies, doctrines of knowledge, and the Marxist postmoderns have one view We as evangelicals, and what I believe the Bible to teach, we have another view. So let me lay out what critical theory is. Critical theory says that no one has access to truth. Notice I said their truth does not exist. I didn't say that. They say no one has access to truth, and therefore all history, all religion, all ethics, all law is merely a social construct of the powerful. That's premise one. Premise two, since that is the case, they feel free and they feel that it is right to overthrow the existing hierarchy, people in power, what they would call the bourgeoisie, the haves, in order to allow the have-nots to have their say at law, ethics, history, religion, etc., etc. So it's a power play. That's what they believe they have to do in our culture. What this leads to, number three, is narrative building. Narrative building means that the proponents of postmodern epistemology and what you see oftentimes in the news is people are giving narratives that are disconnected from the real world. They're not connected in any way to the real world. Why? Because they don't believe you have connection to the real world anyway. So they believe if everything is a social construct... If they all agree on their side that something is true, it's true for them. And they are going to force that down your throat, whether you like it or not. That's the idea. So today, what I'm going to show you is that critical theory is an attack on the Bible itself. Why? Because critical theory, think of this, it's almost like a syllogism, three premises. Two premises and a conclusion. First premise, critical theory disconnects people from the real world. Premise two, the Bible is about the real world. 
Conclusion, therefore critical theory divorces people from the Bible. That's the seriousness of critical theory. And we're going to look at practical ways. Yes, Scott. Well, uh, this all sounds kind of familiar, uh, you know, with critical race theory. It's really related, isn't it? <laughs> it is, and we'll talk about that. It's related. It's a, it's, it would be a, a subsidiary or a, something that's underneath. Criti- critical theory is the overarching umbrella. Critical race theory would be underneath it. And so you could have critical law theory, critical history theory, critical race theory. All this belongs to critical theory. So if we understand what critical theory is, then we'll be able to refute it. And I'm going to give you, again, three practical ways that we can refute this. Think about if we are disconnected from the Bible, what's the problem with that? Well, Romans 10:17 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The sneaky thing that Satan has done into the 21st century, in the 20th century, Satan's tactic was your Bible's wrong. This is incorrect. We as Christians became very adept at proving, no, our Bible is true. Satan in the 21st century in America switches tactics and says, it's not that your Bible's false, it's that you can't know your Bible, that you can't know anything from written language. That's the tactic of critical theory. Now, I'm going to show you where it comes from, the philosophers that teach it, and I'm going to show you what we have to do to refute it. But I want to begin by laying out the broad categories, and that is the battle in epistemology. Again, epistemology is the study of knowledge, What we're saying in the modern theory is that truth exists and we can know it. Now, notice I call this the modern theory. You could also call this just simply the rational theory. That's what I like to call it. I'm just a person who believes that you can know things through a written language. So not only do we believe that truth exists, but we have access to that truth. Notice that is under assault by the postmodern movement, what I would call the irrational movement, And what they're claiming is that, yes, truth exists, but we don't have access to it. Why am I citing that? Because I hear most evangelicals say postmoderns don't believe that truth exists. That is not quite right. Now, ironically, if the postmodern is correct and you can't know anything, your view is as good as their view of what they believe. But I want you to get their view right. Their view is that truth exists, but we don't have access to it. Human beings are locked out. We don't, we can't, we're not connected in any way to the world as it truly is. And I'll show you that that initially came from a man named Immanuel Kant. Okay, now, I'm going to show you that this battle is nothing new. Even though you and I are living in a postmodern era, this has been a battle since the beginning. In fact, even in Jesus' day, there was a battle for the truth. Do you remember in John 18, I'll cite verse 38, I'll put it up on the screen, But in verse 37, remember, Jesus is asked by Pilate, are you a king? Jesus responded, he said, you say correctly that I am a king, for this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. What did Pilate say to that? I would argue it's the same thing that the postmodern critical theorists say today. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. Do you see here when Pilate says what is truth, he is really acknowledging or professing the same agnostic view that you see today regarding truth. How do we have access to truth? What is true? Can anyone ever come to a true interpretation as to what God desires and what humans must do? That was the angst that he was demonstrating, and that's the angst that dominates the culture that we have 
because of critical theory today. So what I'm going to talk about are two different views of truth, two different constructs, two different ways of determining what is true and what is false. What I'm claiming is the Bible, the Western world really, and the evangelical movement has been built on what's called the correspondence theory of truth. This simply says that a propositional statement is true if it corresponds to reality. I like to give the analogy, if, if I say that I give a propositional statement, if I have $5 in my pocket, if I make that statement, and I open up my pocket, in fact, there's $5 there, the statement was true, not because we all agreed on it, not because I wanted it to be true, but because there, in fact, was $5 there. That's the way the real world was. Are, are you with me? So that's the correspondence theory of truth. Something is true if it corresponds to reality. That has been jettisoned. Okay, and what's happened and what Bob and I ran into in the early 2000s and even in the late 90s was you had a movement that became disenchanted with evangelicalism and they bought into postmodern epistemology. So what they did is they jettisoned this very silently And all the while, we as evangelicals assume that this category is still valid. Let me show you the category that this culture holds to, that is those who are in dominant positions of power. They believe in what I call a socially constructed reality. If you look at um, different, for example, seminaries or universities, they will call this the consensus theory of truth. And that states that a propositional statement is true, if some group or a majority within a group agrees. And so that's why you see today narrative building. Um, One of the examples would be with global warming. Think about despite the fact that we're all freezing, despite the fact that in 2014 you had the largest body of fresh water, Lake Superior, freeze over, despite the fact that in the 13th century with record low CO2 you had extremely high temperatures, so much so that Greenland was inhabited by grazing animals and they were putting crops. I mean, you can go down the data list to refute global warming. Nonetheless, it is the predominant narrative. And so what you and I as evangelicals are claiming is, no, God has stated in Genesis 8.22 that as long as the earth endures, there's going to be seed time and harvest, heat and cold, summer and winter. That's what connects to reality. But there's a new narrative, and this is just one example where everything has to be seen through that narrative, and anything that refutes it is jettisoned. That's why you have the suppression from the big tech companies. Why? Because if anything attacks their narrative, you're attacking their truth. And that's what they're so zealous to guard. So what I want to do now is I want to show you the categories that we must win on. These are the three categories. And you might say, well, Eric, why these three categories? You and I are called in Matthew 5.13 to be salt in this dying and decaying world. And if you read any good commentary, when you ask what does it mean to be salt, the best scholarship shows that that salt means we are a preserving agent in our world. Meaning that you and I are the teachers of that which is true. We are the ones who show people the scriptures and who Christ is. And if you and I aren't going to be the ones who teach the truth then no one will ever hear it. We are the preserving agent of our culture. And so what I'm going to give you is three categories that we must win on again. These are the categories that are under attack, even though 
the vast majority of the people that you run into in your life, your coworkers, your family, your friends, they don't know that these three categories are even debated. But you're going to say, this is what, these are what the issues are. And you're going to pull them to a Perkins or you're going to pull them to a coffee shop and you're going to say, this is what, this, these are what the issues are. And you're going to teach them, that's what I think we have to do. In order to, as we're called to in 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within you to everyone who asks with gentleness and respect. So let me give you the three categories. We'll begin with number one. We, uh, we have to believe the fundamental laws of logic exist because God created them. If you and I are to understand both God's general revelation and his divine revelation, we must use the laws of logic. And again, I'm going to prove to you that the laws of logic are inherent to the scriptures themselves, not because you and I invented them, but because God created them. We merely discovered what God created. God created mathematics. We merely discovered it. Okay? Let me give you the second one. The second thing we have to win on is the basic reliability of sense perception. I'm going to prove to you that the apostles used their sight, their hearing, their touch, their taste, their smell to know who Christ was. That is the testimony of John himself in 1 John 1.1. We see the same testimony in the book of Hebrews, that the apostles used the basic reliability of their sense perceptions to testify as to who Christ is. That's under attack today. And I'll explain where it comes from. It comes from Immanuel Kant who said, because your sense perceptions are imprecise and can be fooled, you can't know anything. You can't know anything. So anytime you make a statement, this is true and this is false, the postmoderns will say you can't know that because your sense perceptions aren't perfect. What we're going to say to that is our sense perceptions are good enough. They are good enough. Yes, they can be fooled and we are aware of it, but they are good enough. Okay, and we'll give some examples of that, but I'm going to show you where it's implied in Scripture they're good enough. Number three, this is the third category. The third category is that the author grounds the meaning of a text, and that meaning can be conveyed using language. This is huge. This is what's under attack in the postmodern age. Think about, we recently had a nominee go through the nomination process for a Supreme Court, and what I would love to hear someone ask the question is simply say, Mrs. Supreme Court nominee, do you believe the author determines the meaning of a text or the reader? Because if the reader determines the meaning of a text, the text can mean anything that you want it to mean. And that's exactly the view of the left. And how absurd is that? How many times have you gone to an embers? Remember the old embers? In fact, there was a saying, remember the embers. When I was a flight instructor, we had one. Oh, I used to live on embers. Oh, it was so good. I remember ordering food (laughs) yeah the royal burger there you go can you imagine your waitress comes up to you after you get done eating your patty melt or whatever you had and she says what's 7.99 can you imagine saying well that's just your interpretation the way i read it and and going on and i well no it's absurd isn't it it's 7.99 it's listed in the menu and their sales tax and you figure it out yeah that's true that's that's what it costs so here's my point no one lives this out in the real world But what happens in academia, religion, and politics, they jettison the real world, and they force you to live in this world of of their own creation. What they're doing in these three categories are they're saying, let me pull up my pointer so everyone's on the same page. The postmodern critical theory says the laws of logic don't exist. They're just a human construct. Your sense perceptions are not precise enough to know anything true, and that language cannot convey anything. In fact, the reader determines the meaning. 
And therefore, when you say that historically such and such happened, that's just your view. And when you say this is an ethical standard that comes from God's word, that's just your view. And after all, you're just someone who's trying to hold on to power, the bourgeoisie, and you're holding down the proletariat, and so they want to throw you, the bourgeoisie, off and come up with their new form of ethics, religion, law, and history, saying, why should we listen to you? Yours is just made up. What are we going to use our made-up standards and doctrines? That's what they're doing. That's what critical theory is based on. So let me give you the tactics we're going to use. We're going to first prove that these three things are true, that the laws of logic do exist, that our sense perceptions are reliable enough to know truth, and that the author grounds the meaning, and that these things are inherent to the scriptures themselves. I'll prove that. But also, let me show you a tactic that I learned from a man named Paul Copeland. Many years ago, I was listening to this apologist, and he was debating someone who said, well, that's just your interpretation. He was talking about scripture. And I would run into this all the time, especially at the workout club that I would go to, I would debate with these leftists. I was trying to give the gospel, and any time I cited the Bible, they would say, well, that's just your interpretation. One thing that Paul Copeland would respond by saying is, he would say this, are you saying to me that you don't like my interpretation or that you have cogent reasons to say that my interpretation is wrong? And the reason we should frame it that way is if someone is saying they simply don't like our interpretation that really doesn't matter. And we should show them the absurdity of that. The absurdity of saying to a child, don't put your hand on the stove, you'll get burned. Now, is that just merely a matter of one's interpretation, or is it a fact? But if, in fact, they can show us a cogent reason why our interpretation is wrong, then we will want to hear it. But what's interesting, you'll find out 99.9% of the time, there aren't cogent reasons for rejection of your interpretation. It's merely they don't like it. They don't like it when you say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life from John 14, 6, and that no one comes to the Father but by him. Yes, Linda. I, I get the idea of what cogent means, but do you have another word for that? Because if somebody asked me that, I don't know that I could say. Yeah, um, yeah, no, it's a very good. Um, do you have a better reading, um, a, a rational reading? Yeah, rational. Um, some, yeah, true, true, something that corresponds to reality. So, um, yeah, do you have a better reading than I do of that data? You know, however you want to phrase it. But the idea is I'm saying when I interpret this text, my interpretation is true. What I'm simply asking the person is, are you saying on an emotional level you just don't like it? Or do you have valid, logical reasons as to why your interpretation is better than mine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, very good. Thank you for asking that. Yeah, thank you. Dictionary is clear, logical, and convincing. Oh, thank you, Tom. Very good. Well, that's really good. You've got a dictionary that fast. I better be on my... Clear, logical, convincing. Yeah, clear, logical, and convincing. Very good. Thanks, Tom. Very good. Um, yeah, Brian. I'm dealing with a fella right now where a similar thing is happening, but it turns out in this instance, and I would say lots of instances where I've run into, 
they don't have a better reading because they never read it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, I think you're right. I think oftentimes they supplant their ignorance with just bluster. Yes. So because they're ignorant of what the text says, they don't really have a. You have interpretation A. Well, they actually have interpretation B. No, they don't have any interpretation. They just don't like the fact that you have what you have to say, and they want to mute you. You're, you're exactly right. Yeah, yes, Rich. Briefly, um, the news media, for example, won't even bring up stories that don't fit their narrative. They'll only cover stories that fit their narrative. That's there exactly right. There's a million right. stories out there that, you know, oh, well, that doesn't fit, you know, if it's black on black violence or something. We won't cover that. But if a white guy does it, then they'll cover 24 7, 365. Yes, you see countless examples of that where anything that refutes their narrative has to be buried. And that's part of this postmodern narrative building. Anything, any evidence that goes outside what the, the elite has constructed as their reality, if it, if it attacks that, they have to jettison it. So again, it's not reality determined by the world, real world, it's determined by the narrative builder. Yeah. Eric, I was so, just gonna say, just gonna add to, oh, yeah. I think their arguments are, a lot of times are based on emotion. It's not, Absolutely. they're not looking at the facts, they're not sorting things out logically, it's all emotional. And it gets, it gets, that's why things get so heated. Well it's, said. Uh, very, very emotional sometimes. So, Dan, you're so right. I think um, in one, if you ever study logic, there's formal logic and informal logic. And in informal logic, one of the most common fallacies is the appeal to emotion. If you get into the debate, for example, about abortion, the only thing that should be debated is what is the unborn? What is it? If they're humans, then they need to be protected. If they're nothing, then you can do anything you want with them. Uh, there's a man named Greg Kokel who famously said he was doing uh, dishes at his counter and his little daughter behind him said, Dad, can I kill it? And he said the answer to that question, what is it, was the only thing that mattered. If it's a little ant, yes. If it's your baby brother, no. <laughs> right? <laughs> and that's the whole issue. <laughs> what is, so anything other than what is the unborn is an appeal to emotion. It's an emotional issue. So um, think about if someone said, well, I just don't like Jews, and they went on and on and on by while, while the Holocaust was right. You'd say, well, these are people made in the image of God. They're human beings. You can't kill them. And I don't care what emotional upset attitude you have. I don't care what the emotional issue that you have. These are people made in the image of God, and you can't murder them. That's the same issue. So I'm just pointing out, I think you're right, Dan. I think that the appeal to emotion is the dominant strand of thinking that the culture goes to absolutely now what i'm going to do is i'm going to first of all by the way let me just back up one i want to do for the rest of the message that i'm going to prove to you biblically that each of these three categories is valid that it's implied in the scriptures but i'm almost going to show you where the heresies come from so let's begin with logic before we talk about logic i want to mention an apologist from the third century named tertullian tertullian famously said what does athens have to do with Jerusalem. And what he really meant by that was, what does philosophy have to do with God's divine revelation? And it is a good question. It's a question that I think all Christians have to wrestle with. What does philosophy or logic have to do with God's revelation? Now, Bob has been doing a great job in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 2. He showed us that when it comes to mankind's wisdom and philosophy, it is opposed to the gospel that left unaided, man's philosophy will not come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. But as we say that rightly from the scriptures, we are not saying 
as Christians, therefore God is irrational and his divine revelation is irrational. What we're claiming is that God's revelation is rational and that we must use the laws of logic to understand it. So a proper way of thinking about it is when it comes to the laws of logic, you and I did not create them. Aristotle did not create logic. He merely discovered what God had created. And he just simply systematized it. That's what we've done as humans. Think about Bernoulli's principle. How many have ever heard of Daniel Bernoulli? He was a scientist, a physicist. I think it was the 18th century. And he has a a, a dictum or an axiom that says when a fluid reaches a constriction and has an increase in velocity and a decrease in pressure, well, that's the basis of lift. Now, did Bernoulli create the principle or did he merely discover what God had created in physics? Well, I think it's the latter. And so, you see, that's what we're doing with the laws of logic. What we're claiming is that the laws of logic are something that God created and we must use them to know his word, divine revelation, and we must use them to know his general revelation. These are the things that the postmodern generation are jettisoning. So let's begin with the first one. These are three laws of logic that I think every Christian should know. The first is the law of identity. This is simply how we build categories. A is A. Now, where do we see this assumed to be true in Scripture? Well, in Genesis 2.20, didn't Adam, wasn't he given the right to name all of the animals? This is a cow. This is a bird. This is a lion or whatever it was. He was naming the various categories. A is A. That's how we category build, using the law of identity. Now, if the law of identity is about building categories, the second law is about distinguishing categories. That's the law of non-contradiction, which simply says if A, then not non-A at the same time and in the same relationship. So without the law of non-contradiction, you can't distinguish between the dog and the cat, between the saved and the lost, between the sheep and the goats, between Christ and Antichrist, between the Vikings and the Packers, right? (laughs) You can't distinguish between any categories. Um, Bob did a wonderful job in his debate with Doug Paget years ago where Bob pointed out that the laws of logic Everyone lives them out in the sense that, let's say you go to leave today, you don't try to go out the wall. That's a different category than the door. The door is A, the wall is non-A. Well, of course, he tried to change topics, which is a form of equivocation. He says, well, radio waves can go out the wall. Well, again, what does the law of non-contradiction say? At the same time in the same relationship, Bob wasn't talking about radio waves. He was talking about human beings. If you want to talk about radio waves... We have an answer for that. And Bob's answer was, hey, tune your station into 107.9 and you will not hear the same music that you do on 98.5. Why? Because on your receiver, the scientists who constructed it have constructed it in such a way that you're picking up the amplitudes of the wavelengths of this radio station and not another. That's the idea. And so, yes, the law of non-contradiction cannot be gotten around. Let me give you a third one. The third law of logic is the law of excluded middle, either A or non-A, okay? So either A or non-A, you're either saved or you're not saved. You're either forgiven or you're not forgiven. The very first night that I went to, I, I left the airlines in 2004, 
and I go to my orientation lecture at Bethel Seminary, and guess who's doing the orientation lecture? I didn't have any idea who this guy was. It was Doug Padgett, who just a couple years later, Bob ends up debating. Well, I'm sitting there all excited to go to seminary to learn the truth of God's word. The first words out of Doug Padgett's mouth is, we have to stop binary reductionism now. And I was sitting there in my seat, and I'm, I'm, I'm a little slow because I'm coming from the airline industry. I'm not used to gobbledygook theological speak. And I'm thinking binary reductionism. As an airline pilot, I'm thinking binary either or. Well, to me, gear is either up or it's down, right? Now, how would you like to fly with a postmodern airline pilot who says, that doesn't really matter? <laughs> and you know the old joke is, you know how you know if you're on the ground and your gear is up? It takes full power to taxi. Think about that for a minute. <laughs> but my point is, the categories matter. And I thought right away, don't we have in the scriptures the sheep and the goats? You have the saved and the lost. And so right away, I saw this man as attacking the authority of scripture. Dear ones, what I'm claiming is when the postmodern generation got rid of the laws of logic, what they're really doing is saying you can't know. So Satan in the 20th century said your Bible's wrong. Into the 21st century, the postmoderns are saying you can't know your Bible. But whether your Bible is wrong or whether you can't know your Bible, which is the new tactic, your Bible's done. So we got really good at proving our Bible is true. It is right. The more we dug in archaeology, the more we found, no, the Bible is exactly what it says it is, the very word of God. But now the battle is, can we interpret it knowing the laws of logic? And we can. What I'm going to show you is if you have a left-wing Christian, someone who goes to a social justice church, and they believe in these postmodern critical theory categories, I'm going to show you where in Scripture these categories are assumed to be true. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to see the law of non-contradiction right here. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 13. Remember, Paul is dealing with Corinthians who didn't believe the resurrection. He said, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. So notice for the apostle Paul in blue, the resurrection exists. That's A. So remember, the law of non-contradiction, if A, then not non-A, at the same time and in the same relationship. So for Paul, A, the resurrection exists. The idea of the non-resurrection, that does not exist. That's what Paul is saying. Okay? So you and I do not need the technical definition of the law of non-contradiction to argue that, yes, the resurrection is true, but I want you to realize that we're using it. Even though we haven't systematized, maybe you have a nine-year-old who hasn't systematized the laws of logic in their mind, they still know that being resurrected is not the same as being non-resurrected. It's assumed to be true in our thinking, right? So we're using logic all the time. You go at a green light and you stop at a red light. Does anyone ever say, well, that's just their interpretation, the highway department, right? No one says that. They don't live it out, right? So what I'm showing you is this is just inherent to understanding anything, including the scriptures themselves, okay? Now, uh, think about this analogy, too. If you don't know Bernoulli's principle, does that mean you can't fly an airplane? No, you could still fly it. If you operate the aircraft correctly, you don't need to know that a, when a fluid reaches a constriction, it has an increase in velocity and decrease. You don't need to know that. But it's how the airplane flies, right? Judy. 
I just watched a program yesterday with Charles, um, what's his last name? Uh, Is it Stan? And he was saying that the people in control, the Great Reset, are atheists. They do not believe that there is a God that exists. Right. But they believe that they're intelligent and they're matter. So it matters as to how smart you are if you lead and you rule. And so because they're so smart, they know how to lead and rule. And because there's nothing that matters, people don't exist after they die. They can do whatever they want. That's right. That's right. Amen. That's really the argument that Peter's dealing with. I'm going to come to that later in 2 Peter 1, where you had people who were scoffers claiming that Christ is not returning, and therefore you could live any way you want. And absolutely. And so what we're going to show is no. We're going to prove that you can know. The scriptures are true. We can know them, and therefore we're bound to them. And yes, we can refute atheism logically. In fact, we use the laws of logic to do so. Yeah, joy. I was just going to say one more thing to what you said about the, the framers of our future, the Great Reset. Um, they, they do elevate that, that it's the smart people that have to do that. But the flaw in that is they define what is smart. Exactly. <laughs> right. Well said. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we got one back there. Scott. It all goes back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, where the serpent said, "You will know good and evil." What that what what that really is, says is better interpreted. I, I think you'll agree that uh, what that means is you will determine good and evil for yourself. Yeah, you'll be That's like what God. they're doing. Right. So God says, "You will die." A. Eh? The serpent says, you will not die, nane. There's a contradiction, isn't there, of the scriptures? Absolutely. And so it goes all the way back to the garden. Absolutely, Scott. Yep. Tom. I think those that don't cling to truth uh, are busy defining truth all the time. And I looked at your first statement earlier of A is A. The question isn't just what A is we hear the question, what is is? What is, does is mean? Yeah, yeah, you're right. I remember there was a famous politician who said it depends on the definition of is, right? Good point, Tom. You know, what's interesting is that's what's being jettisoned is the normal understanding of language. How does language, how is it used? How do the signs convey reality? The postmodern generation is saying the language can never convey the world as it is. What we're saying is it's good enough. It does convey the world as it is. Um, there used to be a movement in Germany which I think led to the Third Reich. It was called New Orthodoxy. And New Orthodoxy sounded very holy. It said that God is so other that there's no contact between, between God and man. In other words, all language from God to us is equivocation. Because you and I aren't omnipotent or omniscient, we really can't know who God is. But what our view of Scripture is as evangelicals is not equivocation but something called the analogical use of language, that God condescends himself to us to use language so that we can understand who he is. So, for example, we don't know what it is to be all-powerful, only God is, but we know something of power when God uses that term in his word because we see one engine is more powerful than another, 
One army is more powerful than another. One animal is more powerful than another. So we understand something of power. We see the power of a, a horse simply pulling a buggy. And so by way of analogy, we understand power. We don't know what it means to be loving as God is, but we know by way of analogy something of love because we've had children or because we've all had parents or because we have friends or coworkers, etc. So we understand something of love. And so all of God's communication is where he condescends himself to enter into our world, whether it's the living word who took on flesh or it's the written word, it is God condescending himself to speak to us. So he comes into our world and gives us categories that we can understand. And so this is part of knowing who God is. This is what's under assault today in the postmodern generation. So what I'm trying to show you is that in epistemology and logic, this isn't a subsidiary issue. It is the key issue. It's the core issue. If we don't win here, we might as well just pack it up and go home. Okay? So let's continue on. I'm going to show you another logic where logic is assumed to be in Scripture, or at least we can use logic in Scripture. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 22, 23 through 33. What we're going to look at is Jesus' debate with the Sadducees because we kind of learn the Scriptures and we kind of learn how the laws of logic can be applied. This is a fun one. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 22, 23 through 33. Now, I want you to remember in this text... Jesus is in a debate with Sadducees who do not believe in the resurrection. In fact, they don't believe in the afterlife at all. I also want you to remember that they would only receive the Sadducees, the first five books of Moses, as being authoritative. So in other words, if Jesus appealed to Daniel 12, where the resurrection is clearly stated, or Isaiah 26, that would be rejected. Why? Because it wasn't found in the Pentateuch. So Jesus' answer is going to come from Exodus 3, 6. So listen to what happens. Let's read it. Matthew 22, 23-33. It says, On that day some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no children left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third, down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. So stop there in verse 28. What the Sadducees have done is built a conundrum that they think is so impossible to answer that the absurdity in trying to answer it shows the absurdity of believing in the afterlife and in the resurrection. But notice how Jesus counters this. He gets to the core issue, God's nature. Verse 29 says, But Jesus answered and said to them, you are, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Now here's Exodus 3.6. This is what God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Now, I want you to think about this. Look on the screen, if you will. The Sadducees say there's no afterlife. Jesus cites what? He cites Exodus 3, 6. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the question is, how does that prove 
the afterlife. Well, implied in this argument is the law of excluded middle, that either Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive or they're dead. There's no in-between. But what does Jesus say? He tells us the answer that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, why does Jesus give us that interpretation from Exodus 3, 6? What Jesus is showing is the absurdity and the false advertising of believing that God is merely the God of three dead guys. If God is God of just three dead guys, what happened to the eternal promises in the covenant that God gave? In fact, turn your Bibles to Genesis 13, 15. Let me show you one of the eternal promises that are assumed to be true in Jesus' argument. And that's how the Sadducees don't know the power of God. But again, the law of excluded middle, either the patriarchs are alive or they're dead. There's no halfway. They're either alive and therefore God is the God of the living or they're dead. It's one or the other. Which is it? Well, notice inherent to Genesis 13, 15. Genesis 13, 15. This is an eternal covenant promise that God gave to Abraham. He says, notice Genesis 13, 15. For all the land which you see, I will give to you. Again, you there, atah. This is personal to Abraham, singular, not a plural, not, oh, it's going to be in your descendants. He's giving it to him first, to Abraham and to, and to your descendants. So it is the plural too, but it's Abraham first. For how long? Forever. Hold on. Well, if Abraham is dead and ceases to exist, he's not going to see that promise ever again. And so therefore, God is a liar He is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But if Abraham is alive, that promise is true. God is not a liar, and therefore God is the God of the living. That's all understood in Jesus' argument. So again, the whole argument hinges on you're either alive or you're dead. Well, which is it? Well, they have to be alive if God is a covenant-keeping God. So you and I, we live, remember Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Why is that necessarily true? Because you and I belong to the God of life. Isn't that exciting? You can't perish. Jesus made a promise, they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Yes, Eric. Just to make this really abundantly clear. Yes. In uh, Matthew 22, verse 32. Yes. He says, I am, and that is the present tense, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, etc. Not I was. If it was Amen. past tense, he would say I was. And, the, and the, uh, the Greek, I think they make that clear, I think. The Greek does. The only reason I don't use it as an argument is because there's not a verb in the actual Hebrew text originally. And so I don't make my argument focus on that, but you're absolutely right. In the Greek New Testament and in the Septuagint, there is a present tense form of ami, am. And I think it is a valid argument. However, the reason I'm going beyond that is to show, let's say you're dealing with um, an agnostic Jew who knows Hebrew and says, well, there's not a verb in the original. Well, that's true, but yes, the New Testament is inspired as well. But you and I can go beyond just the grammar and to show that inherent to his argument is that if Abraham's dead, then those promises of the land cannot be given to him and God's a liar. Yep, so we can go there and just show, yep, Jesus is right. He's the God of the living. So that's the whole issue. God is the God of the living, and therefore Jesus proved the afterlife. And again, why does he use that argument from Exodus 3.6? Because it's a book of the Bible the Sadducees would agree. 
on. Now, again, what I'm showing you is just in simple ways, the laws of logic are just assumed to be true. Okay, we don't just jettison them. Even if we're not aware of them, they're underlying a lot of the arguments. Okay, now let's talk about the basic reliability of sense perception. Part of the postmodern angst stems from a man named Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant was a philosopher in 1781. He wrote a book called The Critique of Pure Reason. What I'm claiming is that all postmodernity builds off Immanuel Kant. Let me give you two premises and a conclusion that come from Immanuel Kant's Critique of Pure Reason. Number one, he reasoned that because a person's sense perceptions are not perfect, and since because a person is biased, in other words, we all have biases in what we like and what we don't like, therefore, he concluded, people are stuck in what he called the phenomenal world and cannot access the noumenal world. Now, what does that mean? He means that we're all stuck in the world as it appears to us, phenomenal, but we don't have access to the noumenal, the world as it is. That's what he's claiming. So, in other words, we're just subjective. I like the Vikings because that's my home team and they can do no wrong. Right? By the way, they are my home team, but I know they can do wrong. <laughs> um, so, but you, you get the point. That's the argument is where our sense perceptions are so imprecise and we're so biased that we can never come to a true interpretation of the real world. That's where it all comes from. It's from Immanuel Kant. And so whether it's Hegel or any of the others, he, he's the first one to really systematize this type of thinking. Okay, so with that, I'm going to show you that with Christians... Oh, I'm sorry, Peter. I'm going to show you with Christians, we can show that indeed the basic reliability of sense perceptions is inherent to the Bible. Yes. So, so why did that uh, philosophy get such traction? Because it wasn't refuted at the time or what? You know, I think there were some who probably did refute it at the time. What's interesting, Peter, is it seems that everything that starts in Europe takes centuries to get here. Um, bad ideas take time to travel for whatever reason. In, in America, we really did have a modern epistemology for a long period of time. We were really blessed in that way. It really started getting jettisoned in earnest in the 1960s. And it is through um, Marxism loves postmodernity because it can attack the truth. And when Marxism became prevalent, that's when postmodernity started taking its hold. So think of the 60 radicals that said never trust anyone over 30. They grew up in the 60s. Well, they start to become into positions of power when they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, etc., later in life, 70s. And that's why it takes some time. So all of a sudden you're running into the problems in the 90s and the 2000s because these really are committed Marxists. They have a postmodern epistemology. Now they're running the institutions of higher learning, the seminaries, the colleges, the universities. That's how I think it took that time. So I hope that answers the question. But, yeah, I think that this could be refuted long ago, and I'm sure that there were those who did. I just don't know. I can't tell you a specific case, but I'm sure there was... Christians at the time that were refuting this. But let me show you, though, from the scriptures where the basic reliability of sense perception is implied. Look at 1 John 1.1. This is John giving us scripture from that which is inspired by the Spirit. He says, What was from the beginning what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. Now, what is the word of life at the end there? It's Jesus, the word incarnate. And so notice here, I'll pull up my pointer, John is assuming 
the sense perception of hearing what we heard, the sense perception of seeing what we have seen, and that is even with his feeling or touched with the hands. He's assuming the basic reliability of the sense perceptions. They were good enough for the apostles to give testimony as to who Christ was, who he was, and what his work was. Okay, so yes, the Bible believes and teaches that your sense perceptions are good enough. Um, When I was a flight instructor, we had a method we always joked about. It was the TLAR. That looks about right. And that means sometimes in flying, yes, you're always striving for perfection, but you're really striving for parameters. Okay, so if you're always striving for perfection, you can so micromanage a landing, for example, that let's say you're three inches off the center line. Yes, it's ideal to be on the center line, but what's more important is that you're correcting for the crosswind too so you don't land with a side loading. So the point is you want to put your aircraft in parameters. That looks about right. And my point in saying that is our sense perceptions are good enough. They're good enough. Bill Lindsay was a famous uh, heart surgeon that just passed on some years ago. Beautiful member of our congregation. He did a lot of different heart transplants and surgeries. How did he do that without the basic reliability of sense perception. And you all have jobs and life experiences where you've all done complex things. Do you just get lucky every day? Well, of course, it's absurd, isn't it? You start thinking about the absurdity of the attack on sense perception. And I want you to think about what Immanuel Kant is really saying is a self-refuting argument. What Immanuel Kant was saying, the basis of all postmodernity is that the way the real world is is such that you can't know the real world. Well, he's making a statement about the real world. So if Immanuel Kant is right, he's proven himself wrong, he can't know what he's claiming to know. So right away, we see then that Immanuel Kant and the whole postmodern philosophy is built on a contradictory statement, a self-refuting argument. And therefore, it should be just jettisoned. By the way, the laws of logic, when we're talking about those things, you can't get around them. Bob and I were big fans of a man named Norman Geisler. Norman Geisler would often say that the law of non-contradiction exists because for people to try to say it doesn't exist, they have to use it. Because the law of non-contradiction cannot not exist and exist at the same time in the same relationship. And Geisler said... Anytime you have to use what you're trying to disprove, you don't have a very good case. (laughs) Are you with me? That's what's going on. So the postmodern view is absurd. It's absurd, but you and I can systematize the issues, sitting at a Perkins, showing what the issues are with people who go to their social justice church and say, these are the issues that your church is fundamentally assuming if they're in that postmodern worldview. Okay? So... Let's go on to the next one, and that is that the author grounds the meaning of the text. Now, I'll just introduce this. There's a man named Jacques Derrida. I had to read about him in seminary. Jacques Derrida claimed that the reader defines the meaning of the text. Who is Jacques Derrida? Well, he was a 20th century philosopher from France who was a deconstructionist. He was also a rabid communist, and what he wanted to do is he wanted to destroy the ability for humans to know information using from, from language. He basically wanted you to settle, settle in a realm of despair where you could no longer know anything from the written word. And so Jacques Derrida is the one who is behind critical theory. In fact, if you read the book by Richard Delgado, it's called Critical Race Theory and Introduction. 
the primary source that they list in critical race theory is Jacques Derrida. And that's why, ironically, listen, I wanted you to hear his axioms and how absurd. He has three axioms he lived his life by, the Jacques Derrida. Listen to this. The axiom one from Jacques Derrida, everything can be given at least two equally cogent explanations. Hmm. <laughs> okay, let's, let's just grant him that, okay, for a moment, because the second one is so absurd that it needs to be exposed. Second axiom, in the temporal process of thinking about anything, one explanation collapses into its contrary. So that means the opposite idea is as valid as the asserted idea. So think about the parent that goes to their school board. The school board teaches critical race theory. Critical race theory is predicated on critical theory, which comes from Jacques Derrida. They write it right in their book. Page four of the introduction, Richard Delgado, critical race theory, Jacques Derrida is their man. So think about it. You have to wear a mask. You're at the board meeting. And you could say to them, according to Derrida's axiom, wearing a mask and not wearing a mask are identical. And it's absurd. It's absurd. And so you just tell them that, but do you think any of the people who, who actually put this material out for their school board know any of it? No. But we as Christians, to be salt in our culture, I think we should know. We should know this postmodern absurdity is to say, no, this is ridiculous. Wearing a mask and not wearing a mask at the same time in the same relationship, they're not the same. Yes, Eric. Yeah, and lest anyone thinks that this is esoteric, yeah. all right, uh, our oldest son did very well in school, and so we opted to let him go to St. Cloud State University when he was a 12th grader. And he took a rhetoric class, and he got indoctrinated with this stuff. Yes. And it, it took him a couple of years before I think he... I mean, he was so impressed with the See, yes. because... So your kids and your grandkids, they're getting this, all right? This is what they're teaching. Yes. Yep. You're right, Eric. <laughs> this is Absolutely. not esoteric. This is what's going on. This okay? is. This is their doctrine. Yeah. And it's, so what they're doing is they're teaching epistemology in a false way to try to take the Bible and other written forms of language away from us. Yep. Absolutely. That's right. Yes. There was another question. Uh, yes. Nancy. In line with what you're saying, my... PhD in physics nephew, the material that he's learned is it's so mystical. And it says an atom can be in two places at the same time. And this is science, and this is what we are basing our theories on. It's crazy. Yeah, well said, Nancy. You know, um, let me inter- I, we're almost out of time, so let me react to that real quick by introducing a book that some of you may have read, or maybe some of you have not. R.C. Sproul years ago wrote a book called Not a Chance. You have that book. Excellent read. In that book, he deals with the issue of um, quantum physics. And one of the issues was there was a debate between the physicists um, like Niles Bohr. He believed that when a photon boosted an electron from one orbit to another, he said it transversed the intervening orbit by chance. And Einstein reacted against that by saying... Well, all we're doing by using the term chance is we are simply dressing up the fact that we don't know why it's occurring. Because chance has no being, chance can't do something. So you can't say, well, there's a piece of chance here, and that did something, right? So 
Try to go to your gas station, you're completely out of gas, try to put chance in there and see how far you're going to get. There's no power in chance. And so I, that's where Einstein had that famous saying, I'm quite certain he said that God does not play dice with the cosmos. And he says, whatever the reason is why that electron is going from one orbit to another, let's not dress it up with the term chance because chance has no being. R.C. Sproul took that and he showed that there's no random molecule in the entire universe. Chance just describes probability. So when the physicist says that the universe came about by chance, therefore we don't need God, what they're saying is that nothing did something and they're just dressing it up with fancy language. But it's just as absurd as believing that pixie dust did it as to say that chance did it. So getting to, that's a perfect read for this type of subject, not a chance written by R.C. Sproul. What I'm going to do, I'm sorry, uh, Christy, and then I'll kind of explain where we're going to go and we'll close. Um, just a thought. It, you know, we, are, we want our kids to be critical thinkers. Yes. And so this critical thinking seems like it's been replaced with critical theory. Well said, yes. Ironically, the critical theory is taking taken in uncritically. So when has when the axioms of Jacques Derrida been exposed? Has anyone debated, hey, is the contrary idea really valid? Going at a red light is identical as going at the green light. Try to live that out. You won't, don't do it, by the way. But I mean, you try that for more than 10 minutes on the road, you're not going to make it long. So no one lives it out. And Bob said years ago, that's what happens to the postmodern generation is they live their lives using the laws of logic, the law of non-contradiction, but all of a sudden they go into academia or they go into religion and they throw it away. And they all, they all do it so that they can take your scriptures away. What I'm going to show you, I'll show you where we're going and we'll close it. I'm going to show you there was a debate in the 20th century that most Christians weren't aware of. There was actually a hero that's not even a believer named E.D. Hirsch who said, no, the, the reader doesn't define the meaning, the author does. And we were largely absent in this debate. What I'm going to prove to you from 2 Timothy, or excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 1 is the Bible proves authorial intent. That the author grounds the meaning, not the reader. That's what we're going to go to. And so therefore, if someone says, well, that's just your interpretation, we're going to learn from God himself that because he is the author of Scripture, we're not entitled to our own interpretation. It has to correspond what the author said. That's where we're going to be going next week. So if you will, give a little homework assignment. Please read 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 16 all the way through what do I want you to read through? Let me just, I think it's through 21. Read through verse 21. Again, it's 2 Peter 1 verses 16 through 21. Let's do that. Okay, well thanks for your time. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, We thank you for our time. We pray, Lord, that this would be clear, that we would be able to give a rational defense for the hope that lies within us for all who ask. I also pray for Bob as he preaches, Lord, that you'd give him a good voice, um, that you'd give us ears to hear, that we'd be those who would obey your word, all for the sake of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.